Escapes, a podcast about the legacy of colonialism on land relations in the Portuguese-speaking world. I'm your host, Michelle Gowan, speaking to you from Nogajuana, on the traditional territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabe, known also as Peterborough, Ontario. Welcome to the podcast series, produced by the Lucifone Land Legacies Research Group, and brought to you with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. In this final episode of our mini-series, we share a snippet from the 2021 Symposium, featuring the closing remarks provided by keynote discussant anthropologist Dr. Ricardo Roque. In this recording, you'll hear many voices, some familiar and some new. First, you'll hear the familiar voice of co-organizer and session chair Dr. Laura Yoder, who introduces Dr. Roque. Next, of course, you'll hear the voice of Dr. Ricardo Roque, who shares his compelling observations of the themes that emerged throughout the symposium, organizing his insights and recommendations for further lines of inquiry around the key words that form the symposium title, Lucifone, Land, and Legacies. Following this, you'll hear a special additional recording featuring a conversation among Dr. Roque and some of the symposium participants, in which they discuss and respond to the enriching closing remarks and contemplate the threads that tie their diverse work on Portuguese colonial legacies together. In the show notes for this episode, you will find the link for a written summary of the symposium, which briefly describes the sessions and the nine papers discussed throughout this virtual four-day-long event. We invite you to access this summary for additional context as you listen to Dr. Roque's remarks and the conversation that follows. So, let's journey together to our final destination in Lucescapes with this recording from day four of the symposium featuring Dr. Ricardo Roque. We are just delighted that Ricardo Roque is able to be with us. I feel that he needs no introduction, but I'll just make a small one here. So many of you would know him because his work has really bridged our disciplines and our regions in unique ways. So he has worked a lot on the history and anthropology of colonialism across the Portuguese-speaking world from, I think, mostly 1800 to 20th century, and publishing in both Portuguese and English, so widely accessible to audiences on history of anthropology, race, and colonial encounters. And works span East Timor and Goa and Angola and elsewhere. And one of the things that we've really appreciated and been envious of, even, is the way that his research group at ICS University of Lisboa is convening so many people and really drawing out interests and, and research on empires and colonialism and post-colonial societies. So really appreciate the investment that he makes in building an interdisciplinary team of anthropologists, historians, and others who look at the past and present legacies of this long Portuguese colonial empire. So Ricardo, we are delighted that you have been able to be with us and look forward to your unique perspectives on our conversation here today. Welcome. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone. This has been a great workshop, conference, symposium, and I've learned lots because I haven't been working on land specifically. So this has been a big challenge to me to think through this theme. So I'm going to share some thoughts, try to put together after reading your papers and listening to the discussions. So we'll see if this is helpful. So there's a starting point. I feel that the Lusophone term in the title, it kind of points to one of the issues here is that it, it, it is already a, a bit of a colonial legacy, right? It's like a camouflage linguistic term for for something, some for a space that once was the Portuguese colonial empire. And so this leads us to think about this thing, entity called the Portuguese colonial empire, or Aka Lusophone. Of course, Brazil here is a bit of an outsider, but the colonial is all, there all the way. Of course, we all know that exceptionalist narratives of this empire, as of any other, any other are fallacies, but... But there is one aspect that I think the, the Portuguese empire uh, pushes us to think through, and that is this is one of the overseas European empires that began earlier and that lasted longer. So this longevity is a very a striking feature of this phenomenon. And I think this makes the theme of legacies 
particularly important to investigate in this context is this this longevity pushes the uh, the question um, to new lands, if, if I might say. Why the relevance of a focus on, on land? Uh, I feel perhaps this comes from contemporary uh, issues and debates and disputes about that precisely mobilize the colonial past and, and obviously the indigenous claims to, to rights and to the repossession of land. And this is very has been one thing that in the Anglophone world, as I understand, has been connected to the notion of white settler colonialism and to the land grabbing and uh, the association between settlement, white settlement, and uh, the a genocidal tendency. And the Patrick Wolf, for instance, has written wonderfully and very challengingly about, about this strong link between settler colonialism and the destruction of people's lives and lands and, and, and livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera, all this almost genocidal. And, and the, the Lusophone, say the Portuguese colonial empire also invites us to, to see, well, we see much more complexity than this, but the fact that we focus on land rather than on other issues in the context of the Portuguese colonial empire, I think it's interesting also because it pushes us to challenge some assumptions about or some mythologies about the, what the empire is or was in the past. And here I'd like to call attention to how interesting it is to put the, the question of land and land legacies in, in this context of the Portuguese colonial empire. And one, one reason why I think it's, it's important is because it allows us to take the question of land from a kind of shadow zone or cold zone into a, a visible uh, and, and central place in narratives about imperialism and colonialism in Portugal uh, that goes against the, uh, the national mythology of discoveries. What else? The age of discoveries. And we, when thinking of the Portuguese empire, we, we don't think about land, right? You think about these guys on, you know, on the sea, the navigators, on caravels. You know, there they go. Now, lovely, in you know, their hats and all this the romantic idea. It's all about sea, it's not land. So land is kind of pushed out these narratives of the empire in the very identity, the very nature uh, of what the Lusophone, let's say, uh, Portuguese empire is or was in the past. This is a very strong construction of the past that goes back to the 16th century, it began already there. Just remember Camões' uh, verse, across never sailed seas. It's not a, a, across never occupied lands. And this is of course for one reason. This is all a sea-centered uh, narrative, a sea-centered mythology that willingly or not has the, this effect of a kind of erasing a bit this uh, domination of people that follows the no domination of land the control over people and the violence that goes along with the question of land and which I mean, if we ex exclude perhaps the, the question of the slave trade, which was of course uh, going on at sea, even this is very difficult to fit in the narrative of mythologists, but you know, in the question of land is much more central as I think many of the papers here show, but again, this sea-centered mythology kind of you know, puts aside and it's interesting that those who are responsible for consolidating and disseminating this, this idea of the sea-centered empire were precisely those guys, the land grabbers of the 19th century, the Portuguese imperialists of the 19th and 20th century, or those who invested more into putting this idea of the past as a centerpiece of narratives of the nation and narratives of the empire. These were the persons who were invested in uh, effective occupation in the 19th century. Those were doing, you know, so, so, so many things you described here that began with the, the railways, the road building, the military campaigns, the chartered companies, the forced labor, the native reservations. These were those who were creating a history of the empire that was all about the sea, not the land. At the same time, of course, we were creating a new narrative about the land occupation and the occupation itself that was kind of built up in the same uh, romantic ideas of, of pioneers going to land as if as pioneers that were going into sea, into the sea in the past. 
So this past vision of a city-centered empire is connected with the future of a kind of empire based on, on the land, of a new relationship to land. Of course, there's here a, a construct, an, an opposition between an empire of sea and empire of land. It, it's, it's also very simplistic. And, and the, the new historiography in Portuguese-speaking historiography and, and a Brazilian historiography is questioning this divide. There's so much more new work being done about the early modern that period that is not about the sea and navigation. It's, it's a very strong topic still in historiography, but much more has been done recently, uh, like the, the project by Vicente Serrão in, in, in Lisbon, just to mention one, one project that mobilized a number of scholars around uh, focusing on, on, on land along the longer direction, especially early modern and Asia, which are places that you normally don't associate with that, with Walsh de Vasco da Gama, traveling on sea, bringing spices, all this all these stories that we know, but, but obviously land was always there. Uh, the ceremony of possession was like planting a padrão. Uh, the treaties made with rulers to trying to get all the land, establishing the fortress, a settlement, charging taxes on those who try to establish their advantage from, from land-based resources based on harvest or any other form of agreement, exchange, tribute, and of course, military conquest and trying to you know, conquer land. This was there from the 16th century. So this, this and obviously the other tools that Carmen analyzed in Brazil, the Cismarias, the, the, and all the other forms of trying to extract value from land that, that were there from the start. So I think that the conference really, really pushes us to, to, to break this periodization between the early modern, the modern and the contemporary by putting land at the core and looking at it in the long duration from the notion of legacies. And these questions, these mythologies, these divides that are, are also in a way trying to uh, put the questions of violence away from the center stage of narratives of, of Portuguese imperialism. Another aspect that you need also to consider, which has already been mentioned around the theme of Baldiu, is the concept of a land as terra. How do we translate land in a Portuguese mindset, cosmovision of the empire? This is not easy, but I was thinking that perhaps on thinking about land, we would translate land just into to terra, as in Portuguese. We can perhaps miss some more complexity that is here. So it's not just land that explains the dynamic, the push to land, but perhaps something else. And I was thinking of the duality that the notion of land that's translated into Portuguese can have between the terra and as land and the sertão, the notion of sertão. And I think there is, if you think about this dynamic between the, the terra and the sertão, it's a way also to explore colonial land relations, not just as, as if the land was just a natural thing, entity that is there, that is immovable, but the different concepts that are mobilized to put a, a colonial land appropriation scheme forms uh, on the move, so to speak. And thinking about the shifting dynamics between uh, Terra and Sertão, I think might be one interesting way. There are other concepts that might be at work here, but in the, in the colonial overseas context, this duality, it seems to me, is important. I had a brief look at the dictionaries to try to see what these different terms meant. And I, I kind of found some interesting uh, uh, distinctions and perhaps like signs, I mean, dictionaries count, of course, what we know they are not uh, God speaking at, at all, but they sometimes give us some signs which are interesting. And, and a brief look at the two dictionaries. One is the dictionary of the late 18th century by Rafa, uh, the father Raphael Bluto, which is a reference for many historians. And the other one is the dictionary for Candide Figueiredo of the early 20th century. So in the late 18th century, land, terra, is as defined as the da costa opondo-se ao mar. Is the coast that is opposite to the sea. Of course, there are other meanings there, but this is an important meaning. This is, of course, significant because it's, it'll, terra means the coastal strip of land. Okay, and what it means uh, in certain means the interior, o interior, o coração das terras opõe-se ao marítimo, à costa. So certain is the interior, is the art of the lands. 
what is opposed to the maritime and to the coast. So this opposition is structuring. It's, it's interesting that like the lady in December is kind of, you know, making a record of terror that which is connected to the coast. And of course, the certain which is connected to the, the interior land, which is, does not mean there was no, no exchange and no rela- relations. As we know, there was a lot of things was going on between the two the two aspects of land, so to speak, but it simply is, is not so strongly here the presence of the productive extractive element, which, for instance, we find in the definitions of dictionaries in the late, early 20th century. In the late 20th century, terre, for instance, is defined as the soil on which you walk, the, the softer part of the soil that produces vegetables or the produces. So it's the productive. This is the first definition. You don't have the coastal and the, and the sea opposition again. So it's about production. It's about extraction. Terra is that which is cultivated. This is terra. And what is certain? Certain it's the in lugar in culto. It's uh, distant from the cultivated lands, terrenos cultivados. So it, this is that which is not cultivated. So I find interesting that we find this dynamic here, as if there is a new movement which is about transforming the uncultivated into the cultivated. So transforming certain into terra, certain into land. So making land is just a dynamic of producing land as cultivated instead of just land, which is not cultivated. Anyway, these are just thoughts, but I bring this because it might help us think through the question of land with some more nuances, with dynamics that sometimes legal forms don't give us so much, I don't know, but here it is. Let me turn now quickly to some comments on the papers as well and on this very complex and, and, and interesting, fascinating world that you are all, I mean, as a collective discovery, but we are all discovering, which is the, the world of the colonial land relations or colonial forms of land relations. The symposium has a strong aim at the comparative frame, right? And I think we could discuss here two dimensions of the comparison that you're looking for. One is, of course, the comparison that takes place in space, so to speak. So it's comparing in space, comparing different settings, different places or colonial settings. In this regard, as I read both, most papers, I, I feel that there is here a deficit of, of comparing in space in each paper. Although each one is, is extremely detailed and incredibly researched. And so it's, it's very much about one place and what takes place in one place, but there is not so much about the comparative in this dimension of comparing in space. Perhaps each paper could, if you move forward to publication, to make some effort at some concluding section of the paper somewhere to to draw some more connections. But but in fact, what I feel is the, the strength of the paper, again, going back to the question of time and longevity, is all of them in some manner are pushing and they are exploring the question of comparing in time. Instead of looking at colonial forms of land relations and as they travel, as they change, as they shift over time, more or less in longer or, or not so long duration. But it is the problem that I feel it's there all, all throughout the papers. So the question is, how, how do colonial forms of land relations travel, travel in time? How they change? How they endure to what extent they remain the same or they change in order to persist through people's actions, obviously. They are not entities in themselves. It is also interesting that they seem to travel in time not as, you know, as you go on a road and, and pick up a, a, a car and there you go and it's like on a straight line. They seem to travel in spirals, as and Stoller once, I think, wrote in a paper about racism, the historical spirals. So they come up here, they might come again sometime ahead, and then they disappear from sight, they come back again, they change outfits, so to speak. So this, this spiraling of the, the colonial forms of land relations, I think it's interesting to, to capture in, instead of just a road and imagine a straight line and then breaks in continuities. But it's more of a spiral form. I think this is an interesting perspective. And it is, this is so important that, that to think this way, as I think, as you are doing, that 
to dismiss all this historian simplistic period scheme. You know, you have the early modern and you have the past and the present and the future, and you have changes in political regimes. We have people, you know, saying that the colonialism is dead and it's not there any longer, but then it's not what you see when you analyze certain phenomena. So this approach calls attention to what I think is a characteristic, perhaps interesting in these colonial land relations, which is that they are in mutation, is that they are like mutants. You know, they, they go over time, traveling and uh, undergoing mutations, like almost like mutant entities that go, you know, go on into these forms. They, they morally, and, and they end up belonging to different temporalities. They belong a bit to the past, a bit to the present. They may that point to the future. So this mutating say, aspect of colonial land relations is, is really interesting. I think that you capture this in the symposiums program, and I think many papers do that really nicely. So what forms are we able to identify? Of course, colonial land relations are, are not just one thing. This is another very obvious conclusion of this symposium that I mean, it's expecting here to have a white settler colonialism, and, and that's the end of the story, or having a settler, it's not, it's not what we have here. We have, you know, a great complexity. You have a great complexity, and it's like the main theme is complexity and plurality plurality of forms of land relations or colonial land relations or colonial forms of governing, regulating, accessing, using the land. And here the land, again, the concept land can be many things and it kind of is a a shortcut to a, a much more imbricated and complicated conceptualization of the notion of land. So I see here that uh, in thinking about plurality, plurality of these mutant forms, we think obviously about the many uh, forms we have. We think about the many ways of how these forms interact with each other and how they interact with, say, what is outside this colonial land relations and, of course, we have a plurality of durabilities as well, of forms of enduring over time. So plurality of forms, plurality of interactions, and plurality of durabilities. Think about plurality of forms. So I find interesting that we might have here at least one, of course, we have all these oppositions, the informal, the formal, the legal and the illegal ways of taking possession, the, the state and the private people, the, the foreign actors and, and the Portuguese so-called nationals. So all these actors are here in this big uh, story. Plurality of forms is interesting to distinguish here what is more institutional from what is perhaps a more, more informal ways of relating to land. And the institutional, or say, ways of state governmentality of land, another by the outsiders, the European outsiders. We can also think of, of the extinction that was happening here, which I think is important. It's one, you have uh, some forms of institutions that they are extractivist without possessing the land. Like the guys say we're discussing after, say in Timor and some places that outsiders try to take advantage in some way or find common ground with with forms of tribute that were already there, but that through the vassalage institution, for instance, they bring the harvest system, which is a kind of a land-based resource, to contribute to the colonial, colonial project or imperial project, whatever that is. So these institutions of the vassalage, for instance, was, was not just in place in Timor. It was in Goa, for instance, when in the relationships established with, again, the Sertão, inland from not in the, on the coastal villages where the rural community villages had their own arrangements with the state. It was also a way the Portuguese were connected to the Sobaj in Angola. Of course, not necessarily by the tributes and the taxes and the exchange and the agreements did not necessarily involve all its harvest or land-based resources, but in, in a way there was an exchange or an extraction of value that might have involved land. So I find interesting that we should consider this also as part of colonial land relations and not simply those that seem more, say, obvious, which involve the possession of land or some way of the state claiming a right for itself or the authorities to distribute rights of the land for controlling the land by concession, by grants, 
by distributing even the sovereignty of the state itself to others over land, as when it does that to chartered companies or to Brazos holders. So this self-concept of having the power to distribute land to others It's of a great effect because it also empowers a multitude of other authorities with or beyond the state itself. It starts to, you know, playing the colonial, uh, <laughs> the colonial game. And you have here an incredible complexity and multiplication of forms of authority of the land, which, of course, again, involve the indigenous mediators and the authorities like the Lurais or the Desais or the Sobas or others who are in, somehow empowered or become involved, entangled with this system in other ways over time. And this all takes place at the same time. And then we have the informal ways that kind of the, the pulsators in Brazil, we have the squatters, which I find fascinating, like the marble just told us, these guys are warming to the system, even into the plantation, they start planting trees, using that for their own purposes and forms even of peasantry indigenous peasantries that enslaved uh, Africans that became peasants within this system. So this is, it's, it's an incredibly, it's fascinating, incredibly complicated, but this is all the colonial. This is the colonial. The colonial is not an European with a flag home that goes there and puts a stick. The colonial is this complex plurality of forms in my way. So reading your works, I really calls attention to this aspect. So beyond the plurality of forms, it's pretty obvious that there are plurality of interactions between the different forms. Like when Douglas and, you know, and Laura show us all the, say, new feudal or whatever term we now decide is more useful, that, and it'll show the coexistence of things. Or Carmen shows this, the Cesmarias overlapping with other systems, like Matthias also show that very well, all these things going on at the same time. So this overlaps in coexistence. And of course, the conflicts between these different colonial forms that go on more or less at the same time. Some disappear from sight, some seem to lose force, but they can just reappear like 300 years later with someone with a letter of Cesmaria saying, no, 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 I am the owner of this land. Here I am. So these kind of things that can come back in many, many strange and unexpected ways, like these spirals that go back and forth. And interestingly, this involves, of course, also indigenous people who have become, many of them, entangled with this system. And that's where we see the traps of the customary uh, notion that these are or the traditional as they are today used in many let's say, so-called lusophone context, is that they, they are applied to these kind of forms that they've been developed over time, and sometimes they don't recognize the customary as something that is being shaped from within and along with these colonial land relations. And, and then it kind of just go and impose a layer that and kind of creates a friction between what goes on next. And Elisio also showed that very well, all these issues of history come to the fore. They are mobilized by the African authorities themselves to make the claims, to discuss, and the people, probably the NGOs, become confused with what's going on there because they expect people, I don't know, to tell them some myths of of the, the, the great eagle that comes and the blah, 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 and then they come and tell colonial stories. And, and so maybe people get to be confused. I don't know. So this is so interesting. And of course, the durabilities that if you think about this plurality, when you think about what endures and the, the problem of durability, we have also to, okay, we have all these things from the past, all these things going on. So what in the durabilities also have to be plural, considered in, in the plural. And they have to be considered not just in relation to the formal end of empires, of the empire in this case, which is the tendency to think of the colonial legacy as something that just happens after the so-called transfer of sovereignty and uh, colonization. But as, as papers demonstrate, the colonial legacy is something, it's always at stake, it's always at play within the colonial. So during the sort of the process of empire and colonialism, the question of what we should do, what is behind you, what the past is there, what to do with it, 
Uh, it's all constantly for government authorities or for other people involved. So how to leave what is left, what remains from former colonial forms of organization of intervening is, is at stake you know, over and over throughout the so-called long colonial period, throughout the long duration. It's not something that just came up out of the blue after 1975 or after 1991 or after 1961 or after 1822. And I think the papers again show that, show that the colonial legacies need to be think also in this perspective. And one thing we think is interesting about durability is that they are not, you know, papers like Aaron's fascinating paper on road construction made me think about this very strongly. It's about the question of the material durability of these legacies. So there is a material imprint, like Stoller and others have called attention, of, of what remains from the past. But what also comes very strongly in some of your papers, work with oral history or with ethnography or field work, Yes, yes. And not just with the archival, but with both, or just with more with one than with the other, is that you really need to attend to how people mobilize this past, how they live, how they relate to these legacies. And sometimes they, how they relate to these colonial effects or pasts and how they mobilize them in so many different ways. And what we might see all year, here is a colonial legacy. And people say, a colonial legacy? No. This is not a colonial legacy. This is my aunt's uh, aunt. So what do you do with that? How do we deal with the people confronting you with the forms of historicizing the past that do not conform with what you see, for instance, a material imprint of a, a road or a plantation or you name it, but might construct it so differently. So I find this also important to incorporate into our stories. This, what uh, Ansor just, uh, I think, says in among the many things she says, some, no, sometimes contradicting one another, but one thing she says is that we have to attend to how people live with what remains and what the people count as colonial effects and what they count as what lies dormant and what is not dormant, what is active, what is not active. And sometimes the ambivalence of these perspectives of, on what is the on what is left and what remains, which sometimes might surprise us, because I feel sometimes, even sometimes implicitly, when you go and look for colonial legacies, you go already with your finger points. Here is a colonial legacy. What kind of a morality thing? This is there is a you see there's the evil of a colonial legacy. Well, I can see it. I can see it. that's a bit of a, sort of a moral, implicit morality in the identification of a colonial legacy. Because the colonial, it's not a good thing. Now, you don't want an adjective colonial attached to you, right? And sometimes people don't necessarily, I mean, people generally, I mean, this involves not just people in a village, but my politicians or whoever, as experts, might not simply see it that way and not live with that in that way. So I think this is a bit of a challenge to, to be open to these possibilities of ambivalence and different ways of living with colonial legacies that are sometimes more ambivalent, more positive and complex than sometimes we expect by looking, for instance, at, at, at the archival. And when you look at both or together, and some papers do it so nicely, but even if not all papers do these crossings between the archival and the oral, I think as a collective, as a group of papers, they invite for this, they invite the reflection on this on these crossings. And I just want to conclude to a final provocation with this to ask if you see this way, this possibility of all these ambivalences of how people live with the colonial legacies or with colonial legacies of colonial land relations, is you ask ourselves what we leave out of our emphasis on the colonial of all the forms, alternative forms that, that are not necessarily colonial legacies that we need to, to attend and what our emphasis to finish on the colonial legacy basically misses. What might we be missing by just putting the emphasis on this aspect? Other forms, insurgent forms, alternative forms, things that go on the side, how people think differently, 
because the focus on the colonial sometimes repeats a bit the obsession of colonial powers with their own, the effects of their own actions. And, and sometimes they are not simply so effective and so much was going on on the side that doesn't even go on the record. As Anne just mentioned, when these uh, colonial planter was there in an island, then in fact, the colonial authorities didn't notice, but people did. Okay, so I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Ricardo. I appreciate here so much some of the framing, even just thinking overseas as the emphasis, ultramarino, and having that be even sea-centric in itself. And what's the center? What's the periphery? I mean, there's lots of different ways to look at that. I appreciate also the idea of the different forms of comparison. I think that is something we'll want to look at going forward across space, across time, and also, one of the ways that we see this recurrence is the power to control or distribute land. Even giving land away is a signal to power and sovereignty of the state. And we see that again across many centuries and having that be something that was sought after by so many different agents within what we've talked about this week. So just a lot of rich food for thought there, the durability, the morphability, the mutability, the recurrence is something that I think just has been so striking in, in interacting as a group to see, ah, that was also in Brazil and this same phenomena in Angola, and there it is in Mozambique. So seeing different kinds of things for comparison, for contrast, but what are the reasons behind that? Brings us back to some of the simple questions that Tanya Lee challenged us with at the beginning of why here, why not there? Why does this continue? Not always looking at change, but also at continuities, accidental or not. So those will be some things for us to consider as we go forward. So huge thanks to you, Ricardo, for attending and for the thought that you put into wrapping that up. And I'd like to thank each participant, actually. We hope that this has been an impetus for you to go forward, an encouragement, and something that will also feed your own research and your learning and the joy also that you have in the work that you do archival, ethnographic, historical, political, geographic, and otherwise. Now you'll hear the impromptu discussion that took place following these closing remarks, featuring symposium participants, including Dr. Roque and Dr. Yoder, as well as symposium co-organizer Dr. Susanna Barnes, anthropologist Dr. Jose Adelima, and political scientist Dr. Doug Cannon, all whose work you can learn more about in both the symposium summary and the show notes. Reminds me of a master seminar I was in and our professor asked us to think about how we think about time in our minds. And going back to your question about that sort of teleological straight linear fashion and spirals, it's always been an image that has really stuck with me, the spiraling of time. And in fact, this was one of the early conversations that Laura, Bernardo and I had around this was that we kept on seeing the same thing come up over and over again. It would sort of be really relevant and then it would disappear from the record and then it would come up again. Different name, different discourse surrounding it, but it was the same thing, essentially. And this happens right up until today and very much so in relation to instruments of land formalization. So that was really one of the impulses behind this workshop. And just listening to you in your comments, I kept on thinking of articulation and assemblage and that being a useful way perhaps for us to think about how these things re-articulate themselves across time and space. And I really like the emphasis that you placed on, you know, custom is not static. It's very, very dynamic. And even though we've had so much work about the dynamism of custom, it still gets reified, especially when we're talking about development interventions or even from a legal perspective. And that's where the hidden comes out, I think, and a recognition that people will take advantage of a situation to find the best thing for them. So this goes back to that idea within these great plans for plantation, people were still planting their own trees and harvesting their own trees that they were selling the produce to to the Chinese traders for their own profit. So these are the sort of absences, I think, and perhaps the stories that are lost along the way. And I do have another comment I quickly just want to throw in. Ricardo, I loved this thing about the changing meaning of land. 
and how specific that is and how tied that is to the Portuguese experience, I guess, this idea about land, the significant land being the coastal land, and then this idea of the interior and how then that develops into this cultivated, uncultivated. And, you know, it sort of comes back to so many papers where cultivation and so many of the legal instruments around land stress this idea of land has to be productive and this push that we feel that the colonies had to be productive that they had to produce. So I absolutely loved those definitions and I just wanted to thank you. Oh, definitely. I went to the dictionary and I had I had the feel that this, I think this opposition is structural. or It's a kind of a dynamic duality that is so, well, it's not always there everywhere. It's every dualities like these ones. But I was surprised to find such different definitions in these two referential dictionaries. And definitely the 19th century, I mean, it's not to say that there was no concern with production, obviously not. I mean, it's not that, but the emphasis on the productive. And then then Timur, Doug has just, Laura found that very clearly in the late 19th century, all this concern with making the colony productive making the colony economically viable. It's in many other contexts the same concern. And it is relates to the uncultivated land, the unexplored, say, normally it's about the Sertan. The Sertan, the outback, the backland, the artland, whatever you say, becomes this place where dreams and futures of empire become imagined and positioned and they're placed there. And all this investment throughout, especially of the 19th and the 20th century, as well, are, in my view, I mean, very much about these spaces, about these lands. We did not discuss here so much about the territory and the border demarcation, but it's always also part of all this conversation about land. But yeah, so the coastal is where Terra is. Terra is the coast because it's what you see from the sea where people arrive by boat, by ship. And that's also what has to be cultivated. So the interplay here is interesting and maybe we could something could be done more around this. I was just thinking of, obviously, the Southeast Asian overlay of that with interior and coast. But I also wondered for places like Angola or Mozambique, if just as we were talking earlier about Baldios and the way that the term has taken on new meaning and morphed over time, I wondered whether the Terra and Sertão overlapped or overlaid or took new forms in places like Mozambique, where you don't have, again, like a a more coastal strip, and maybe the productive land is, or the cultivated land. So yeah, Jose, did you have, how is that term even used? So Mozambique also has a coastal area. In fact, where I did my fieldwork is a coastal area in in the Delta, the Zambezi Delta. And in my own thesis, I also explore the changing meaning attributed to land. As I mentioned in my response the other day, is that in that specific place, land had a different meaning in the past because the meaning that land had was the host of coconut palms, of trees. So the land didn't have a value on its own until all the palm trees died. And then people start looking around about way of surviving. And then the commodification of land, which was there in the past, became one of the sources that people could connect to the land and they gave land a different meaning. The result was an increasing number of land conflicts because that space was small, it never grew. As I mentioned, you couldn't cultivate food crops because it was not fertile. Now people had to fight to use that small piece of land, which was not productive in the first place. So I explored that also in my research. It's interesting how you just mentioned there, like with value comes conflict, often the case. And that, of course, can be one of the strategies for declaring land, wasteland or forest or you know whatever, in order to reduce the potential conflict. Who wants to fight about wasteland if you've given it that kind of definition or, yeah, something that isn't central? Yes, I think the the Sertão notion is very tied to the African interiors of West Africa. And uh, I believe also in Mozambique, I don't know so well, 
I think the notion would be perhaps applied as well, uh, more commonly. This, but in Angola, for certain, and Brazil, obviously, this is where what we know so much about the Sertão in Brazil until today. And in Timor, in Southeast Asia, we know it's not so used. The expression is not so common, but it juxtaposes to the coast upland, of course, uh, uh, low, in the well, Southeast Asian opposition, which, which is so prevalent. But the colonial here, it's a dynamic of possession, civilizing. And, you know, of course, if you think about Southeast Asia, we have all these James Scott mountain resistance and coastal lands and... I think there are lots of dualities that you can sort of spin off that, you know, so you've got the coast interior, productive, unproductive, lowland, upland, sophisticated, uncivilized. You know, we can then begin to also look at characterizations of people, mestizo, indigenous, you know, they all roll off that dualism in many ways. Of course, you know, some of these things are all too black and white, but it's a useful way to think about. Exactly, of course. Familiar, unfamiliar, known, unknown, safe, dangerous. José also said it pushes us to think about the notion of land as multiple and not just one thing. Because it's just say land and you know, we all know what we're talking about. And it's not necessarily that. As José just mentioned, and we know from Timor as well, land it, no, it's not necessarily this notion of a productive and extractive thing. It can be many other, of course, other meaning the significance is that... I think it's important to bring this into the stories of colonial land legacies, basically. And sometimes we're just too certain of the notions we are using about land when sometimes they are not so clear. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking now while you're talking, I'm thinking about how some of these things then get refracted and interpreted, you know, at the local level. I've been thinking about that concept of refraction on lots of different levels, on stories and relationships and things like that. There's a saying for Akusi, we have our backs to the sea for Akusi Ambeno, for the enclave, because many people in Akusi would not eat fish. So there are abundant you know, sea resources there that they will not use. They will not eat fish. And you know, even famous stories when the World Food Program was distributing the tins of sardines, people would lie down on the road to prevent the trucks from coming to deliver the canned goods. And Doug, they all ended up to this day in the Chinese-owned warehouse on the coast, tinned sardines from who knows where. But this, we have our backs to the sea, that we don't eat fish, we don't engage with the sea, we focus on the interior is just the opposite of this, you know, coastal focus. So, you know, even the view of importance and what are the important places, who are the important people, where do they live, being kind of inverted in different locations where the Portuguese would have gone. Now you've got me thinking about fishing and boats and because in Watulari is the same and I've always put it down to the fact that there are crocodiles and so you wouldn't want to go fishing anyway. (laughs) But you know certain lineages have the sort of rights to fishing but not everybody fishes. I'd like to read more about this sort of turning the back on the fishing even if you think of Fataluku, all the stories of arrival and settlement and the houses being upturned boats and everything, but it's sort of, once you're on Timor, that's it. You don't then go back to the sea. And that's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the deliberate ignoring of the sea. Well, I think that in some cases, the sea itself can be seen as a form of land or, or land as a form of sea. Like when you go and see the fishing as a, a form of harvest in some places. Like if, as if you were cultivating the sea. Because sometimes, like in Portugal, is in perhaps in Timor, the same guy who, who cultivates the land goes fishing. Sometimes it's a seasonal job, a seasonal work. You go fishing, as in Portugal, it was very common. During certain periods of time, they go fishing in some areas, and you could go and work in the land for a landlord in some periods of the year. Yeah, that seasonality of fishing is really interesting. But then, of course, there is a lot of the lowland areas near the mouths of the river and on those plains on the coast were pretty uninhabitable for quite a long time. (laughs) I mean, right until when the Indonesians displaced people and made the forced villages along that southern road of Watelari, that was malaria-infested bog, and it's still horrible to live in, but because the road's there, people stay there, but it's much better, much healthier to be in the upland. 
historically, my sense is a very small percentage of the population lived anywhere near the coast. Well, just Dili, which they probably... There was almost no one in Dili historically. I mean, you go back to the 1850s, it was minuscule. Yeah. I mean, you're talking 4,000 people in 1850s, 1860s? Yes, possibly. It was only 19,000 in 1975, apparently. We were having this discussion the other day. You know, it was still tiny then. Very few people lived along the coast. Yeah. I think about the Suai, because I don't know, because there's another port on the south coast. I don't know what, there's not much known about what was going on there. I wonder. Hans has material about Dutch ships on the south coast. I've always wondered about it and wondered what the benefit of sailing all the way around the south coast would have been. But you could ask Hans. There was some trade then on this Suai port. Suai and Beasu. Beasu is definitely a port. And then where I do my fieldwork, which is a little bit further east, there's a Ponte Caixe there from the Portuguese period. But I think that that's quite a late anchorage. There are stories around that anchorage that I can't remember just now. But Biasu is actually, you know, this is where people say that slaves were loaded up onto ships as well. So, of course, these are stories and I can't date them. But certainly ports and exchange happening around those ports. But I'm not quite sure if anybody lived down there (laughs) or did so in a permanent basis. I think that there's still this up and down. Great. Well, we definitely have our work cut out for us going ahead, I think. Indeed. <laughs> Drawing the threads. And yeah, I like the multiple sort of kinds of characterization from today, from Tanya Lee's talk, and just also her simple questions about continuities. I think I'll be thinking about those for a really long time. Thank you for listening to the Luce Escapes podcast. We have reached the end of this mini-series, and on behalf of the Lucifone Land Legacies Research Group, we want to extend our thanks to you, our listeners, for your engagement over these past several weeks. You can continue to learn more about the Lucifone Land Legacies Research Group and their work at lusolandlegacies.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes peeled for the upcoming edited volume due to be released in 2022, which is based on the symposium content, and keep your ears to the ground for a future podcast series. And if you now find yourself in need of a new podcastscape and are interested in the intersections of history and anthropology in the Portuguese-speaking world, be sure to check out the Imperios Research Group podcast, available on Spotify and linked in our show notes. Special thanks to co-producer Dr. Susanna Barnes and to research assistant Jessica Jack. Once again, I'm your host, Michelle Gowan. Thank you for listening.